Alright everybody, welcome back. This is Didactic Mind, episode 57, The Rods and the Axe. Very warm welcome to all of my long-time listeners. Uh, well, you wouldn't be long-time listeners because this is on Podbean, not on SoundCloud, so my listeners. Um, but if you have come here from SoundCloud, or if you've um, stumbled into this podcast via... Um, Google Podcasts or Apple iTunes or Audible or Spotify, the various uh, platforms that this podcast is now uh, available on, then welcome. And uh, please make sure, as always, that you hit the subscribe button. Make sure that uh, you are always uh, notified of new podcasts and uh, make sure that you get the latest information uh, whenever I upload a podcast, and if you are from um, my site, uh, as always, very warm welcome to my long-time readers. If you are new to my work, please make sure you head over to the site, didacticmind.com, and uh, subscribe to my email list so that you never, ever miss a new upload, you never miss a new post. Um, there's plenty of good stuff to keep you going, and honestly, uh, it's been a difficult few days. Um, it's been challenging because I think everybody out there right now who thinks like we do, thinks like I do, is being ground down very slowly and very painfully by a kind of existential despair. This feeling that it doesn't matter what we do, uh, nothing's going to work nothing's going to happen, we're always going to lose. We're always going to lose every fight. Every attempt to get out of our current situation seems to fail. Um, the enemy, the great adversary, seems to be winning. And don't worry, I mean, this isn't going to be black-pilled. I don't do black-pilling, I don't do despair. I'm just telling it like it is. I'm telling you that uh, I'm not the only one feeling this way. There are plenty of other people who feel... Um, of, of my acquaintance, actually, who feel kind of the same way, that, uh, you know, that, that they, they are not um, cheerful, they are not happy with uh, the way things are going, and they don't know how to cope with the pressures that they're under. It's not just me. It's not just me saying that things look bleak, things look difficult, because they do, and they are. Um... If you look around the world, you see people have basically just surrendered, given into fear. Particularly with respect to the kuf, the kung flu, General Tso's chicken pox, uh, the Chinese mumps. And I really don't give a crap anymore if people find those offensive. I, I just, I'm, I'm at the point where I'm almost beyond caring if people are offended by what I say. At least, you know, when I'm writing under my pseudonym. When I'm writing under my real name, then, you know, it's... I do have to, at least for now, take care about what I say. Um, but it's getting to the point now where you really find yourself wondering, what is going on? Why are we getting so much pushback right now at this very instant? Why are we under so much pressure to think a certain way and act a certain way. Well, if you are of a spiritual bent, 
and I am, then you will understand that this is not accidental. Our enemy thrives on despair. He thrives on our suffering. The enemy has already lost the great war, the war in heaven um, in which Lucifer was cast down and uh, I mean there's some debate as to exactly how many of the angelic hosts was cast down with him to become demons. Um, you know, if you look at uh, what Dr. Michael Heiser has to say on the subject, then this idea that one-third of the heavenly host was cast down is, as far as I can tell, um, not supported by scripture. Uh, I, I could be misquoting him, so you know, make sure you go and watch it for yourself. I make no claims whatsoever about um, the accuracy or lack thereof of that statement. Uh, but the point is, there is something moving uh, in time and space and beyond time and space, to use the old Churchill quote, uh, which, whether we like it or not, spells duty. And that duty is very hard. It is very hard to execute. Now, what is that duty? Well, that duty is to use our freedoms that we were given, not by governments, but by God, and use them responsibly. We have failed. We are failing. Most of us have failed miserably to exercise our uh, responsibilities in line with our freedoms. And the reason why all this comes to mind right now is because, once again, I am for the umpteenth time in the midst of rereading the greatest science fiction novel ever written. Uh, military science fiction, I should say, excuse me. Uh, the greatest science fiction novel ever written is Dune by Frank Herbert. But the greatest military science fiction novel ever written is Starship Troopers by Robert Anson Heinlein uh, from 1958. Now, I have written a number of times on my site as to why I consider Starship Troopers to be the greatest military science fiction novel of all time. Uh, it isn't just the brilliant ideas explored within about powered armor and um, assault infantry dropping in from orbit uh, onto a planet. You know, this is uh, basically the idea of um, what you might call uh, airborne assault, um, paratroopers, taken to a space-based logical conclusion. Um, this is the novel that started off the entire idea of true space marines. The, the concept of the space marine existed before Starship Troopers came along, but this was the first book to really codify it and give us an expanded vocabulary that helps us to understand what a space marine really is. You know, a space marine in powered armor, um, capable of dropping behind enemy lines and acting as a massive force multiplier. Um, as the book says, you know, the mobile infantry is designed in such a way that if you put one MI, a, one single MI trooper, cap trooper, up against a platoon of tanks, he could knock off all of them unassisted because tanks are useless against something as mobile and yet as heavily armed and armored and fast as a mobile infantryman in his powered assault armor. Um, if it were not for this book, 
the amount of science fiction that uh, followed it that would not exist without it is simply staggering. Without this book, you would not have the Warhammer 40,000 sci-fi universe, which is more like a fantasy sci-fi universe, but there you go. You would not have um, StarCraft. <clears throat> the space marines in StarCraft draw direct uh, inspiration from the space marines in Starship Troopers. You would not have Halo, my favorite video game and sci-fi franchise of all time. It would not exist. I mean, the whole idea of the Mjolnir powered assault armor comes directly from Starship Troopers. Uh, the idea of force multiplying circuits uh, it is basically lifted straight from the pages of Starship Troopers. It's not just the sci-fi innovations that make Starship Troopers such a brilliant book. It's also the ideas that it talks about in terms of how government works and what is the ultimate objective of um, fair and limited responsible government. How do you achieve that end? Now, when it came out, Starship Troopers was branded as a fascist book. Um, inevitably by people who have no understanding what fascism is and are completely clueless as to its definition. Uh, the reason why so many people think of it as a fascist book is because it's very militaristic and very right-wing. Uh, or so they think. They're, they're taught to believe this by a bunch of um, not terribly intelligent book reviewers who evidently have never actually read the book. They've never bothered to sit there and go through page by page, exactly what the book says. The reality is that this is not a fascist or right-wing or militaristic book. This is a 268-page civics lesson, civics textbook, actually, in the form of us in, in disguise as a science fiction novel. Um, and that is, in and of itself, an astonishing achievement. It is even more astonishing when you think of the fact that this was written at the height of uh, Heinlein's powers. Um, yeah, this was right after he had finished writing the Twelve Juveniles. And if you go and read a post of mine called The Ageless Juveniles, which was written a few years back, I talk about the juveniles that he wrote for, I think it was Scribner. Um, these were a series of books written for young boys, for boys on the cusp of adulthood. So basically boys in the sort of 13 to 17 age range, uh, maybe a little younger than that, 10, 11 to 17, I would say. And the purpose of these books was to show the transformation of a young, untested youth into a seasoned, wise, experienced man. And that process of transformation, the journey in which that transformation took place was always remarkable to behold. Um, the sheer diversity and depth of the, the juveniles is really astonishing. I mean, you can read them as an adult today and you would enjoy them very, very much. I certainly did. Um, I was more than twice the age that uh, is recommended for, that the, you know, the juveniles are aimed at when I started reading them. 
so some of the juveniles are better than others. Um, my favorites were probably uh, Space Cadet, Red Planet, um, what else? The Rolling Stones, that's great. Uh, Tunnel in the Sky, Starman Jones. These five out of 12. I think the other, I mean, the other seven are good, but they're not as good as these five. These five are amazing. Um, especially, I think, Starman Jones and Tunnel in the Sky. I think truly astonishing books. Space Cadet, which I think is the second in the series, is very interesting because it is the, you can think of it as the prototype for Starship Troopers. Many of the same themes that Heinlein picked up on were embedded in Space Cadet. And I'll get to what those themes are in a minute, but the point behind the book was to show what it means to be a citizen. What does it mean to have a vote? What does it mean to exercise the sovereign franchise? The meaning of the sovereign franchise, as Starship Troopers explicates very clearly, is that the sovereign franchise, the vote, is force, raw, naked force, the power of the rods and the axe. That's where the, you know, the title of this podcast comes from. It actually comes from uh, a very brilliant lecture given by one Major Reed in, um, in Starship Troopers, in the voice of Major Reed. And he's talking, I mean, there are a number of passages throughout Starship Troopers in which Robert Heinlein kind of speaks through the instructors. He speaks through um, Lieutenant Colonel Dubois, or he speaks through Sergeant Zim, or he speaks through Major Reed, uh, to explain a very particular understanding of political philosophy. The entire point or the entire argument behind Starship Troopers is very, very simple. If you have a right to vote, you need to earn it. It's that simple. That's, that's all there is to it. And this was so radical, apparently, that at the time that the book was published, it was hugely controversial, and a lot of people thought he was a fascist for even suggesting it. My view, after many, many years of watching various political systems uh, fail, utterly and completely, is that he was right. You cannot have political authorities separated from responsibility. And in fact, there's an entire passage of the book, again, Major Reed's lecture, which is all in, entirely on the subject of um, authority and responsibility. Literally, I mean, the, the, the passage goes something like this. But this universe consists of paired dualities. Uh, what is the converse of authority? Mr. Rico, he had picked one that I could answer. Responsibility, sir. Applause. For both practical reasons and mathematically verifiable moral reasons, Authority must always and everywhere be equated to responsibility. Else a balancing takes place as surely as current flows between two points of unequal potential. To permit irresponsible authority is to sow disaster. To hold a man responsible for anything he does not control is to behave with blind idiocy. This is the entire core of the book. Um, the whole thrust of the argument is very straightforward. If you have this right, you must earn it somehow. You must, it has to cost you something. And what we see today, all around us, is the result of people who have never paid any price for their vote. Think about this carefully when you look around you. 
look at how people are reacting to the beer bug. This is a, a prime example of people acting without any thought to responsibility or authority. Let's be clear about a couple of things. Number one, the beer bug has a, an overall survival rate of, of about 99% plus if you're under the age of 70. We know this. CDC's own data confirms it. I'm not saying anything that is radical or strange or bizarre or unverified, no matter how many people think I might be. My own family thinks I'm crazy for saying this stuff, but it's, tr it's the truth. This is CDC data. The, uh, fact number two, if you are above the age of 70, you still have about a 95% chance of surviving if you get infected with the beer bug. Yeah, a 5% mortality rate is disturbingly high, there's no doubt about it. But the overall rate of death across the entire population of all infected people is about 1 in 400 at this point. We know that. That means that it's really not much worse than, well, I mean, it's a bit worse than uh, a really bad flu, uh, a really bad flu season. Fact number three, masks don't help. I don't care if you don't like me for saying that. I don't care if you disagree with me. I don't care if you find that offensive. I just don't give a shit anymore. The latest data that we have on the subject comes via a Danish study, uh, which was rather interesting. This Danish study was rejected three times by various medical journals. Why was it rejected? We don't know, but we can hazard a pretty good guess, because if you look at the actual Danish study, if you look at the abstract, the abstract says right now that uh, wearing masks uh, can help mitigate the spread of COVID-19. Okay, so apparently the study says wearing masks is useful. Then you scroll down a little bit. Go to the results section. What do the results say? The results say that they took about 7,000 volunteers and they split them up into two randomly, uh, randomly selected groups. And um, the people with masks had a somewhat higher drop or dropout rate or non-compliance rate than the people without masks. Uh, then they measured the rate of infection of both groups. Uh, I think the people with masks had a dropout rate of about 7%, and the people without masks had a somewhat lower dropout rate. The rate of infection was not really statistically significant. The p-score of the study was 0 0.33. 33% r-squared, in statistical terms, is garbage. It's statistically useless. Well, not completely. I mean, a, a p-score of 5% is genuinely useless. Um, but an absolute p-score, an r-squared of, you know, 33%, is basically statistically meaningless. You can't draw any real conclusions from that. What that means is, I mean, um, in, in terms of regressions, if you were to draw a straight line through a cluster of data points, you know, you would, you would try to get a best-fit line through that cluster, and you would very quickly realize that, really, it's just a cloud. It's, it's just a, you know, it's a more or less random scattering of points on a, on, a, on, a, um, on a page, you can't really draw a straight line through it. Uh, if, the, if the correlation was like 95% or 99%, that's like, wow, that's a great result, then it would be very close to a straight line. All the points would be clustered very closely around that line. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, it means that we're following completely the wrong policies. Expert after expert is coming forth now and telling us that um, 
we shouldn't be closing schools because children are the least likely by far to die from the virus. They're actually the least likely to get infected in the first place. If they get infected, uh, parents and students, uh, parents and teachers who are around them actually develop more resistance to the virus than if they were the, if they were on their own. That's not me speaking. That's Dr. Scott Atlas, who is one of the advisors for President Trump. He actually seems to know what he's talking about. Um, we have a treatment regimen that will work for this virus. We know what that is. It is large doses of hydroxychloroquine sulfate, azithromycin, which is an antibiotic, uh, magnesium, zinc, and vitamin C. We know this works. Dr. Fauci and Big Pharma may want you to ignore these findings, or they, they may not want you to know about them. The media definitely doesn't want you to know about them. And yet, these are the same people who, about six months ago, initially were like, oh, actually, hydroxychloroquine has some promising results. Now they're all like, no, 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 hydroxychloroquine doesn't do anything. Well, if it doesn't do anything, why are there hundreds of doctors around the world who keep saying we've, we're seeing positive results? Why are their results being suppressed? Why is, why is their information not getting out there? Why are their voices not being heard? Why is this happening? The answer as to why it's happening is because when you look at things on a spiritual level, as well as on a political, economic, and so on level, you'll quickly realize that we're up against forces that really genuinely want us to be scared and frightened and cowering. They want us in this position because then we are easy to control. This is where the concept of rights and responsibilities comes in. If you believe yourself to be a free man, and most people in the West do, erroneously, they wrongly think that they are free, then you have a responsibility to exercise your freedom and to guard it. You must protect it. Your freedom is not free. You don't get to be free just by saying, I'm free. No, it doesn't work that way. The, the major point made by Starship Troopers is that, again, this universe consists of paired dualities. If you have a right to life, then by definition you have a right to protect that life. If you have a right to food, then by definition you have a right, uh, you have a responsibility to uh, guard that food from other people. If you have a right to defend yourself, then by definition you have a responsibility to use that, to, to use the, the right to defend yourself carefully. You can't go around shooting other people just for the, the hell of it. You know, let's go back to that whole right to life idea. Most people who aren't atheists or liberals or idiots, some overlap, I admit, will argue that most that people have an innate right to life. If you are alive, by definition, you have a right to be alive. What is a right? And so step back even more fundamentally than that. Look at what is a right. A right is something that is, is an attribute or property that you have, which if someone tries to take it away from you, you can seek redress. You can you have a grievance, you have a legitimate problem, and you can go and seek um, compensation, or you can seek uh, damages for somebody trying to take that right from you. Once you understand this, that 
if somebody tries to take that right from you, you then have the ability to go and seek redress for it. A lot of the confusion and clutter and nonsense around this whole idea of human rights really gets stripped away very fast. Because then you very quickly realize that actually most people have very few rights and most people only need very few rights. Pretty much, well, everybody really only needs very few rights. Number one, right to life. If you are alive, you have a right to life, by definition. Number two, right to self-defense. If you are alive, you have an obligation to protect yourself from anyone who seeks to remove your right. If somebody tries to remove your right, what is your uh, method of recourse? It is to exercise self-defense. Therefore, you have a right to self-defense. Right to freedom of conscience. Not Note, not right to freedom of speech. There is no such thing as freedom of speech. There is only... Um, really freedom to think as you wish. You can't just say whatever you want in this world. It's not possible. Um, if, if you say whatever you want, you know, that's fine, but you're going to be held responsible for the words of your mouth. Uh, if you, d does anybody remember that, um, that scene at the beginning of, or close to the beginning of uh, a classic film, 300? It's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's incredibly silly, incredibly loud, incredibly goofy and extremely violent, and I absolutely love it. Um, it is possibly uh, quite gay, so, you know, draw your own conclusions from that. I'm not, you know, just... There's a lot of um, guys in not very much clothing in that movie. Um, I try to ignore that, um, because, you know, there is a legitimate heterosexual sex scene that goes on in it, which is nice. Uh, this was back when Lena Headey was actually very, very attractive. She's not so much anymore. Not at all, in fact. Um, but this is a phenomenal movie. It's absolutely fantastic. And I, uh, you know, I've, just because it, it really gets you fired up and it, it gets you excited about this last stand of the 300 Spartans. Um, the 300 Spartans were somewhat misnamed. If you actually look at the history, uh, it wasn't 300 Spartans. It was 300 Spartiates, meaning full-fledged citizen soldiers of Sparta. Free citizens of Sparta, of which there were never really uh, many more than 25,000. Uh, Sparta was a completely communist, it was a proto-communist society, complete with the realities of a communist society, which is to say a massive underclass of slaves to maintain their economy and keep it functioning. Uh, this was a very, very weird society. Um, but if you look at the story of the 300, it wasn't actually 300 who showed up, it was about 7,000 Greeks. So uh, 300 full-fledged heavy infantry, hoplites, held the pass at Thermopylae, at the hot gates, um, supported by auxiliaries, squires, allies, and so on. The total number of all of those extra forces brought their numbers up to 7,000. Um, uh, Thucydides, or however you pronounce his name, uh, and Plutarch reckoned... Is it Plutarch? I forget. I think it was Thucydides who, who discussed the last stand of the 300. Uh, but basically, the 300 held the line... Well. 
along with their 6,700-odd allies, against a vastly superior, in terms of numbers at least, uh, Persian alliance, which had come um, across the sea. When I say across the sea, I mean, this was back in the days when um, navies were not easily able to to, to traverse the Aegean in such large numbers. So the Persian um, flotilla under Xerxes hugged the uh, coastline of Europe and made their way down towards uh, Greece. And eventually they landed and uh, they, uh, they were met by this auxiliary force because the Spartans and the Greek, their Greek allies understood very clearly that in order to march overland into Greece, they had to make landfall somewhere near Thermopylae. The terrain just favored that, um, that, that landing point, and they would have to march inland to get supplies, because you cannot feed an army that large um, simply based on what you have in your stores on your ships. Now, the, the ancient histories tell us that a million men, uh, or, or the, I should say the Persians fielded an army of a million strong, maybe even two million. This is almost certainly a vast exaggeration. However, more contemporary estimates reckon it was somewhere between 100 and 250,000. Uh, I think the consensus figure is something like 145, something like 140,000, maybe 170,000. Um, that's, that's a rough guess, so don't quote me on those numbers. But the last time I checked, the current consensus is about 100 to 250,000 men, somewhere in between them. Anyway, the Persians could not get through the hot gates because their infantry were not suited to that kind of warfare. Their entire idea of infantry consisted of uh, men with swords and spears and light wicker shields. They could not handle um, the far superior Greek assault infantry. Uh, because hoplites were precisely that. They were heavy, very heavy infantry units. Um, they were, they were the assault troops of their time. You know, armored and armed to a degree that, uh, really nobody else in the ancient world was. N- nobody else had that level of, uh, extraordinary protection and, um, and force behind them. Now, Thermopylae stands out in our popular imagination because it was a legendary last stand. I mean, the the 300 uh, Spartans died to the last man, except for two men who uh, were released by King Leonidas, or Leonidas, if you prefer. Uh, One of them had been blinded completely. He had lost both eyes. And the other was sent back by uh, Leonidas to Sparta to inform uh, the ephors and the ruling council uh, of, of Sparta, the, um, the ugh, I can't believe I've forgotten the name, I used to know these names, um, but he, he was supposed to go back and inform them that uh, of, of the death of, of the king and of these 300 Spartans. Sparta at the time had two kings. Now, the reason why this stands out in popular memory is because, again, it was a legendary last stand, and that the, the guy who was completely blinded, he marched back into ranks and demanded to fight alongside his brothers, and he was welcomed in, 
and the guy who went back to Sparta, he is he um, his name his name was uh, I forget his name, but uh, started with an A. Uh, he was the the archetype for Dilios in the movie. Uh, he he was considered a coward for leaving the battle, even though he went under orders. And um, in the subsequent Battle of Plataea, where he engaged, he led actually Spartan forces against um, against the Persians. Uh, he fought with such ferocity and and skill that the Spartans considered him redeemed and rehabilitated, but they would not give him any battle honors. They would not acknowledge him in any special way. They simply said, you know, welcome back, but we're not going to treat you special. And he was like, good enough for me. I just want to be known as a Spartiate, a warrior, uh, who did his duty. And that's how he was known from, from thenceforth. Um, this was a classic example of men exercising their freedoms and their responsibilities. And that's exactly how it has gone down in the canon of Western history. The thing to understand is this was um, another great example of a terrible crisis in which half the Greek world was kind of frozen in paralysis uh, by the advance of the Persians. They, they couldn't figure out how to handle it. Uh, half, the, half of the Greek city-states were like, well, the Persians aren't so bad. I mean, they're, they're the richest guys around, you know. We could make loads of money dealing with these people. We, if we just submit to them as vassals, yeah, okay, they will have to send off tribute, but they're across the sea. Um, surely it's not going to be that bad. Um, we'll still have our lives. We'll still have our properties. We'll still have our sovereignty, sort of. Uh, would it be so bad to bend the knee and acknowledge the Persians as our masters? The uh, Achaean League said, no, we ain't going to do that. And the Athenians said, no, we're not interested, because the Athenians were a naval power and uh, a trading power, and they wanted to preserve their trading rights and their trading hegemony across the Mediterranean and the Aegean. Uh, the Spartans were just very famously intransigent to begin with. They just didn't like the idea of being under anyone's control. And they were considered, rightly, to be the fiercest and most powerful and most dangerous fighting force in all of Greece, uh, and eventually in all of the ancient world. Now, those men who died uh, fighting for their homeland, for their freedoms, embodied exactly what Starship Troopers talks about in the book. Uh, there's a, a magnificent passage in that book in which Juan Rico, Johnny Rico, is uh, contemplating whether he made a huge mistake in signing up for uh, for service. And he he's marching back with his platoon. He's very weary, he's tired. But the night before, he got a letter from his old teacher uh, in history and moral philosophy in high school, a man named uh, Mr. Dubois. And the letter comes to him, and he's shocked because he cannot understand why he is receiving this letter. And then he's even more shocked because, I mean, he... In, in that class, he thought that Mr. Dubois didn't like him very much and you know, was very scornful and thought he was a bit of an idiot and um, therefore, uh, you know, Johnny Rico didn't, didn't like his class very much. The only reason he 
paid any attention whatsoever, as he points out in the book, is because there were such lovely arguments. But he reads this letter and he's even more shocked because it starts by it starts with his teacher addressing him as my dear boy. I uh, I I am writing to express my delight at the fact that you have chosen to serve. And not only that, but you have chosen uh, my own service, the mobile infantry. Um, this is the reward that we teachers strive for. We necessarily sift through a great many grains, a great deal of sand to find the gold nuggets, but it is the nuggets that are the reward. I'm paraphrasing here, obviously. Um, and it goes on at some length, and there's a, there's a quote in the middle of that letter in which uh, Colonel Dubois, Lieutenant Colonel Dubois, says, uh, the attitude that you have is, um, can, can best be, the, the attitude that you need in order to succeed as, uh, in, in this path that you have chosen, can best be summed up by a misquotation. Greater love hath no man, uh, no, sorry, hang on, this is, uh, this is later on. Um, the noblest fate that a man can endure is to place his own mortal body between wars, de um, between his own beloved home and wars desolation. That is the summary and s the sum and substance of what citizenship means. That's it. There's another quote later on in the book which says, "Citizenship is an attitude, a state of mind, a mental conviction that the whole is greater than the part, and that the part should be humbly proud to lay down its life that the whole may live." That is citizenship. That is the epitome of the understanding of a citizen's responsibilities in exchange for his right. And that is what we have forgotten. That is why we are allowing ourselves to be terrified by a bug that really isn't that dangerous. That is why we are allowing fear and uncertainty and doubt to cripple us because we have forgotten that we have a responsibility to ourselves and to our people. That's the core of it. How do we react to these losses of freedoms, which we brought upon ourselves? I mean, this is our fault. We did not exercise our responsibilities. How do we recover it now? Well, firstly, by recognizing and acknowledging that we have responsibilities. Uh, by keeping ourselves educated and informed of the facts, not by watching the media, because, I mean, I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again, and I don't care who gets offended by it anymore. I'm just, I'm sick and tired of, of these prostitutes and these hornalists, these, these sycophants from the media who I genuinely believe to be corrupted and twisted and evil. I mean, we know who they serve. We know the lies that they tell. We know that these people are irredeemable. They, they have chosen repeatedly to lie to all of us. They have refused to investigate truths when given the opportunity. They have simply flatly ignored blatant examples of fraud and election theft and electioneering in front of their own eyes. They have spun narratives that are absolutely verifiable lies to all of us. They keep telling us things that are blatantly false. 
they they keep trying to pretend for instance here's a very specific example they keep trying to pretend for instance that wearing masks is going to stop the spread of covid it's not we know this it's not just one danish study saying it either by the way the whole lockdown thing the whole mask thing where did that come from where was the scientific evidence it doesn't exist it, there was no evidence whatsoever that lockdowns helped there is no evidence whatsoever that lockdowns help the evidence that we have in front of us tells us that lockdowns are either completely ineffective, meaning they have no statistical impact whatsoever. I mean, you might as well not lock down, um, and you would have the same effect as if you did lock down. Or they're actually genuinely harmful because people violate these lockdowns. They decide, you know, I'm not going to tolerate this crap anymore. Um, I'm going to do what I feel like, and, you know, justifiably so. I mean, you cannot keep people penned in constantly you cannot keep people living under an atmosphere of fear all the time they're going to rebel by definition um there was no scientific evidence whatsoever for no basis at all for what they did to us the models on which these lockdowns were based um on this whole flatten the curve idea was based was garbage these these models were complete and utter nonsense um uh, Dr. Niall Fer Neil Ferguson, excuse me, not Niall. Niall Ferguson is a Scottish historian, a damn good one, um, and a very interesting chap. Uh, not morally the, the best guy, but, you know, we'll leave that aside. Um, he cheated on his wife with Ayan Hirsi Ali and, and, and whatever. But, um, you know, Neil Ferguson, Dr. Neil Ferguson, is Dr. Lockdown. And he was the clown who came up with that... Uh, that ridiculous model back in sort of March of this year, which said 2.2 million Americans are going to die if there's no lockdown whatsoever. And even, you know, even Donald Trump got suckered in by this. His most illustrious, noble, august, benevolent, and legendary celestial majesty, the god emperor of mankind, Donaldus Triumphus Magnus Astra, the first of his name, the lion of midnight, the chattest of chads, may the Lord bless him and preserve him. That guy got suckered in by this doofus. That prediction was so ridiculously off, it wasn't even funny. And you know, the reason why that prediction was so off is because as I've been over, you know, as I've mentioned in, in podcasts and in articles before, they mixed up their maths. Like, they, they literally, they, they, they mixed up two numbers, and that's the reason we're in the situation we're in today. That's literally all it was. They mixed up the number of people that die in hospitals from influenza with the number of people who die overall in the population from influenza. And then they multiplied that by 10 to get this mortality rate for COVID. So they were like 1% mortality rate globally. Except that's 100 times too large. That's the, that's the core assumption behind these models that they're using. Uh, the IHME model, the Imperial College model, uh, various other statistical, you know, quote-unquote models that they're using around the world to justify these idiotic lockdown measures. So, once you factor that out, once you realize that actually this, the, the mortality rate is like 0.2%, and for people below the age of 70, the mortality rate is more like uh, less than 1% um, overall, and once you realize that for healthy people um, in their productive prime, you know, basically below the age of 50, somewhere between the age of 20 and 50, the mortality rate is less than half a percent, once you realize that, then it's like, what are we doing to ourselves? This is idiotic. This is stupid. This is absurd. 
that 2.2 million figure, it's, no, it's not going to happen. It's never, it was never going to happen in the first place. I mean, yes, if you have a population of 330 million in the U.S., and roughly 1% of those people will die from COVID, that's 3.3 million casualties, that's terrifying. There were some adjustments made, so, you know, the, the mortality wasn't considered that bad. You would get to herd immunity after about 70% of the population was infected, blah, 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 blah. Okay, fine. You still have 2.2 million casualties. That's the number that they went with. That's bullshit, and we know it's bullshit. Their entire mortality assumption was wrong, and we knew that all the way back in March, April of this year. It wasn't that bad. But we didn't have an appreciation of our freedoms. We didn't appreciate our responsibilities enough to say, to stand up and say to them, no, you're wrong, you're idiots, you, you don't know what you're talking about. There were doctors back then who were saying this. There were doctors like Jay Bhattacharya um, in New York and uh, Scott Atlas uh, and a few others who were saying, no, look, guys, you got to calm down. This isn't so bad. It's not going to be nearly as bad as you think. Everybody relax. The data we're seeing is not so terrifying. But no, we didn't listen to them. We listened, we panicked. We thought that um, it was better to use the precautionary principle and to lock down everything. But when has lockdown, has a lockdown ever worked, historically speaking? Well, in general, it hasn't. The only times these lockdowns really work is when you have um, something that is, uh, you know, something on the order of the plague or leprosy, uh, which is transmitted by touch. Um, the, the Black Death is not tr transmitted by touch. Leprosy uh, is uh, transmitted by um, bodily contact and fluid. Uh, Ebola is another great example of a really terrifying disease that is transmitted through bodily fluids. Uh, but airborne viruses, you know, lockdowns don't really seem to do very much. They don't really seem to have much of an effect. As for masks, well, why is it? Does anybody remember how back in March, April, the Surgeon General and the CDC and the WHO were all telling people don't buy masks. Number one, because it's, it's robbing our hospitals and frontline responders of much-needed PPE, protective, personal protective equipment. And number two, because they don't really work. Well, that's your change in a big hurry. Supposedly, wearing a mask is going to keep you safe from everything. Well, no, it's not. This is information going back to 2019. So this is well before the coof, well before the bug well before um, the, the Hornlist Corps absolutely lost their spines and their minds and actually reported on things kind of semi-honestly. Um, there's a very interesting set of data that uh, I was looking up in an article the other day, which shows that wearing a mask is not particularly effective at stopping the transmission of influenza. And this is not new data. This is going back to about 2009 with the swine flu epidemic. Uh, it's not useful. Why? Even the N95 masks are not that effective. Why is that? Because these masks aren't actually designed to stop virus particles from getting through particularly well. Now, the natural answer to that, and I've had this pushed in my face by family members who got really pissed at me when I said this, uh, is that, well, there must be a reason why hospitals keep buying so many masks. Yes, there is a reason. Because when you're working in a hospital environment and you're working in an aseptic environment where doctors and nurses have been scrubbed down, disinfected very thoroughly, they're constantly watching their personal hygiene, the point is not to protect them from the patient. The point is to protect the patient from them. The point is in wearing a mask in an operating theater is to prevent any germy breath from the doctor from getting out and reaching the patient. 
but that is not a 100% guarantee. And remember, this is after the doctor has already been scrubbed down and he's wearing, usually, you know, during surgery, he's wearing a face shield, a plastic face shield as well. But none of this is a guarantee against infection. None of it is. You are still likely to run some risk of infection from the medical staff. It's, you know, it's, it's unavoidable. The point is that in a surgical environment, you try to minimize that risk of transmission as much as possible. But in the streets, out there on the roads, that aseptic environment doesn't exist. It's, it's not there. And when you're out and about and you're fiddling with your mask and you're you know, constantly taking it on and off, and or if you just leave it on all the time, you're constantly fiddling with it because it steps down and you're you know, trying to do it up again, um, then it collects germs. Your hands collect germs. You're going to touch your face. If you meet other people, if you're in close proximity with other people, you're going to get exposed to this bug. And the reality is that those cloth masks, um, even the you know the blue surgical masks, don't don't protect you particularly well. That's you know that's the truth of it. That's the reason why that Danish study said what it said, which is that statistically speaking, these masks aren't very effective. Um, even the N95s are not particularly effective. And if you're wearing uh, these fashionable cloth masks or um, uh, comfy fiber masks on your face. Well, honestly, you might as well wrap your face in chain link. That's about how useful it is. So, if we had done a little bit of due diligence, and more importantly, if we had appreciated our rights and our freedoms a bit better, maybe we wouldn't have been in this position. Maybe we wouldn't be all cowering in fear from a bug that honestly is not particularly dangerous to most people. Now, the comeback to this is, well, what about the long-term effects? You know, okay, what about them? How many people in the total population of infected people have been subjected to long-term effects? About 35%, as far as I can tell. It's about 35%. And that's not a small number. That is scary. That is a worrying statistic. Okay, I'm not going to lie about that. I'm not saying COVID-19 is not dangerous. It is. It is a dangerous disease. It is something that we haven't really seen before. But is it so dangerous as to justify destroying people's lives, destroying people's freedoms? No. <laughs> Nowhere even close. Nothing is. Nothing justifies that. Ultimately, people have to have the right to decide for themselves what they want to do. And what we're doing is shutting ourselves down from open and rational debate. We're refusing to acknowledge that our choices have costs. We have deluded ourselves into believing that we can keep ourselves free of death, and we can't. In fact, the economic cost of shutting everything down in terms of productivity lost, jobs lost, businesses destroyed, savings lost, homes repossessed, uh, families torn apart, uh, business opportunities wiped out, is staggering. We're already seeing uh, suicides, domestic abuse, alcoholism, and uh, all manner of other social ills shooting up around the globe. Um, we are already seeing, particularly with respect to suicides, some really horrifying statistics in the UK and the US. 
uh, it's looking like millions of people will lose their homes this winter. In the winter, for God's sake, in the USA. Why? Because they can't afford to pay the bills anymore. Because they've lost their jobs. Because their blue state governors and mayors are refusing to let them go to work and make any kind of living, any kind of money. And for what, exactly? For control, for the sake of control. That's the answer. These people want to control you. They want you to be afraid so that you will be dependent upon them at all times. And unfortunately, it's working. Because most people do not acknowledge their rights. They do not acknowledge their responsibilities. They think that their right to vote comes free of cost, that they can vote for whatever they want. They've never had to pay for it. They've never had to sacrifice anything for that right to vote. Which is why, over time, I think what we're going to see is a return to more common sense methods of um, restricting the franchise. So if you look at the history of the USA, back when it was founded, the right to vote was restricted only to male, white, free landowners. Um, if you look at, uh, I think it's Georgia, I think it's Georgia, or it might be Alabama, I forget exactly which state. This was mentioned in John Ringo's book, The Last Centurion. Um, the counties in, in that particular state, I think it's, I think it's Georgia, are really, really small. Why is that? Because the landowners in that state wanted to be able to ride to their uh, county uh, seat of power and then back again to their farms within uh, one day. So everything was half a day's ride away. Um, the county capitals were always half a day's ride away. Uh, so these counties were all really tiny, but that meant that if they needed to vote, they were always able to do so at a local level, and only landowners could vote. Now, that was done away with in most of the country you know, over the next hundred years or so, and that may, may well have been a mistake, because if you owned land in the United States, you had skin in the game. Uh, one of the biggest mistakes we've ever made in any country in all of history is letting women vote. And that is going to piss off a lot of people, but it's the truth. If you look um, at publicly available data, the, the, only, um, the only examination I've seen done of this information comes from um, Judgy Bitch, Janet Bloomfield, uh, who sadly gave up blogging because she was threatened with doxing and uh, she'd kind of reached her breaking point. Her husband, I think, was diagnosed with uh, what I think was terminal cancer, I'm sorry to say. Uh, I, I don't know what happened to him because she, she, she just shut down. Um, but she was threatened with um, doxing of her children. So she gave up blogging because she couldn't stand to see her family threatened. Uh, and she did an analysis of uh, government data come from New Zealand, which showed uh, the total percentage of government funds contributed, contributed by and then consumed by men versus women through time as they age. And what, become, what became very clear from that was that women consume a vastly greater share. I mean, they're, they're basically all consuming. They're, they're constantly consuming um, from the public fisc. They don't contribute back. They are not net contributors. They are net uh, consumers of public money right up until about the age of 50, something like that. 
and men throughout their working lives are net contributors and they only start drawing down um, from the system once they start retiring, which is you know, 55, 60. Uh, if that wasn't significant enough, if you look at the growth in government, particularly in the USA, if you look at the growth in government spending, since the passage of, I think it was the 19th Amendment, no, hang on, it's the 19th or the 17th Amendment, um, which allowed women to vote, the growth has been absolutely exponential since then. It's, it's actually scary. Uh, if you look at the way that government spending has taken off since that time, since women were given the right to vote, it is horrifying how fast government has grown. This is the reality of giving people the right to vote when they haven't paid anything, when they haven't sacrificed anything for it. Which is why the point in Starship Troopers is very simple. It's not a fascist point, it's not a right-wing point, it's not a militaristic point. All that Robert Heinlein was trying to say was, if you have a right to vote, you should earn it. You should earn that right. In other words, you have a democracy, not democracy, not monarchy, not oligarchy, nothing like that. Everyone who votes must have earned that vote through hard, arduous service in favor of it, in, 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 uh, for his country, so that he never, ever forgets, ever, for the rest of his life, that that simple right to cast a vote for whoever's going to be the next leader, the next, you know, is going to be in power next. Um, he never forgets that he paid a price for it. Does that mean we'll have a perfect political system? No. Because a perfect political system is one that men cannot create. It's impossible to have one. The only perfect political system is one in which you derive your rights from God and you obey God's laws and you are always in sync with what he wants. And that's impossible because we are broken we are fallen, we are sinful. It's not going to happen on this earth. okay? But it's something to think about. Because imagine if you were in a system where people actually had to pay a price for voting in left-wing lunatics. I don't think you'd see very many left-wing lunatics coming into office. I think you'd see a lot more people saying, you know what? I earned my money. I earned my position. I earned my business because I fought for my country and I don't want to see these loonies sell it down the river. I don't want to see my my home, my family, my everything, my future destroyed. It's not a guarantee. It's, you know, the military skews about one-third liberal and two-thirds you know, moderate to conservative. But it would be a damn sight better than what we have right now, which is a population that simply gives up its rights Whenever confronted with any form of hardship, whenever uh, anything unexpected comes knocking, it's always, we go to the government for answers. No, you, you can't do that. The answers lie with you, not with the government. So, learn your rights, stand up for them, accept that your freedoms come with responsibilities, and start exercising them, and start protecting them. Because if you don't, you don't have freedoms, you don't have rights. Be a slave. Because that's essentially what you've signed up to do. And that's about it for this week's uh, Didactic Mind podcast. We are at uh, very close to the one-hour mark, and I try not to go over with these things. So, hope you enjoyed the podcast. I know it was a bit controversial, and I'm perfectly happy with that. Uh, I'm, I'm quite sick and tired of keeping my opinions under wraps now, and uh, I'm just getting more and more irritable by the day because of the nonsense that's going on. But... Um, 
At any rate, this has been Didactic Mind, episode 57, The Rods and the Axe, and this is Didact, signing off.